0: Uh, For those that use this particular Bible, it's on page uh, 1015, and for those who read, read Luke's email, they'll know he described it as a real doozy. So I'm looking forward to hearing that unpacked later on. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, You will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing? Untying that colt, they answered, As Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "'May no one ever eat fruit from you again.'" And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, My house will be called a house of prayer The fig tree you cursed has withered have faith in god jesus answered truly i tell you if anyone says to this mountain to go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes what they say will happen it will be done for them therefore i tell you whatever you ask for in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Amen.
1: Good morning, everyone. To keep the conversation going over uh, some coffee after our time together um, today, my learning goal and all good teachers. Do tell you the learning goal to start the lesson, I, I, I think. Um, if you're a teacher and you don't do it, I'm not saying you're not a good teacher. I'm just saying you should have a learning goal, as teachers tell me, uh, is this. Be encouraged. Today, I do want you to be really encouraged because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's the goal, and I hope you walk away feeling that. And we're going to travel along a long, winding road to get there. Um, but do be encouraged because... I reckon that that true faith, true religion, true um, Christianity is actually living by faith in Jesus, knowing that through Him we're forgiven, He hears our prayers, and He's the King. That's where we're going to go, but be encouraged as we do it. We begin our section, Mark 11, uh, in the first 11 verses, and Jesus is on His way, uh, to. uh, Sorry, He's at Bethany on the way to Jerusalem. And he's going to make his way into Jerusalem by riding on a donkey that no one's ever ridden on before. Showing how the way of Jesus is both a continuation of what God's doing, but also something new. And this simple act of riding a donkey is shocking and provocative. First up, no one rides an animal into Jerusalem at this point in time. There's a well-known prophecy from Zechariah 9 verse 9. Listen to what it says. And people attached hope to it. It says, Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah nine nine. To run an animal into Jerusalem, when this was the buzz around people's minds for, for a long time, it was to say, I'm the Messiah King sent from God to rescue and liberate his people. And so you just don't do that, right? Even Alexander the Great, when he came to Jerusalem, they said, you must hop off your horse and walk it in. You cannot do that because of what it means. This is Jesus' sword in the stone moment. Back in the 60s, if you remember the animated film from Disney, young Arthur, right at the end, forgets to bring the sword for Kay. Kay's entering a jousting contest, right? Where's the sword? Oh, no, I left it in the inn. He runs back to the inn, but because of the big event, it's locked, and he can't get in, so he looks around desperately in the churchyard, sees a sword sitting in a stone, thinks, I'll just run over and I'll just grab it, and he pulls it out and runs back. It turns out, this is the legendary sword with the inscription... Whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone is rightwise king born of all England. No one can use that sword unless they are the king. No one can ride a donkey into Jerusalem unless they are God's king. But unlike Arthur, who hasn't got a clue, a bit naive, of what he's just done, oh, I'm the king now, um, Jesus is very well aware of what he's doing. And the people know this too. So they they lay down cloaks and branches as a green pathway to welcome Jesus, shouting a phrase of praise, Hosanna. It means God save us. They joyfully sing Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And this here is what Bible people often call the triumphal entry. The King has come into the city and he goes to the temple to inspect, in verse 11, the health and vitality of his people. He looks around, and it says. Mark, at this point, would not have us forget, as he's writing his narrative of Jesus' life, would not have us forget why Jesus came here. Three times in his gospel account, he's told the disciples, Jesus has, he will die and rise again. Hosanna, the king will save. The people declare, yes, but no one has grasped quite yet the chilling way that this will happen. The way of Jesus here has an undertone of pain and suffering. The king comes in not to claim a political agenda for the world, uh, urging Christians to take over society and make it better in that sense. True religion is nothing less than sweet, beautiful praise of Jesus the King who has come to save and rule over a new community through his death and resurrection. Hosanna! Let us declare and praise that our God does save. But let us pause and ask, as we think through this and Jesus' entry, do I have an agenda that I attach to Jesus? May I see in him nothing less than the suffering servant as King to save us and welcome us into his eternal kingdom. Jesus, the one who came to give life and vitality to his people by setting up a new way of relating to God. Is that what I see? Or am I using Jesus as another way from my own agenda? He comes to bring life. Which is Mark's point for the rest of chapter 11, actually. And there's such a weird, strange few verses. So we have to remember the king has come and he's inspected the temple. That sets up what's about to happen. And it's so weird and it's very odd And Mark does this story sandwich thing, which he's done a few times. Tells a story, doesn't finish it, tells another story, finishes the first story and wraps them all up together. So what I want to do is to unpack this, keeping the king, Jesus king coming in in our heads, is three puzzle pieces here in the three stories so we can see the picture on the box, so to speak, that Mark wants us to see. And we'll go through them all and and hopefully at the end you'll go, ah, I see what's happening. So the first puzzle piece that we have to be mindful of is, is this cursing the fig tree thing. So next day, Jesus is hungry, and he heads to a fig tree that has lots and lots of leaves, and it looks healthy, and he gets closer, but there's nothing on it. And Mark makes the point very clearly, green leaves, but no fruit, because it wasn't the season. And while Jesus sounds like a child with hangry pains, getting very grumpy that the tree doesn't have the fruit he's looking for, he even declares, you'll have no fruit ever! You know, what? the question is, why does Jesus expect a fig tree to make figs all year round if it's not the season? This is really odd. Well, the point isn't that Jesus doesn't understand how a fig tree works in his time, because he would have. It's symbolic of something more than a fig, and it doesn't make sense. The disciples hear it; they don't get it. it. Doesn't make sense to us yet. We don't have any more information, but it will. What we're to begin to see is that something huge is taking place in Jerusalem, in Jesus, as he comes in as the king, who has the authority to look and judge, not just a fruitless tree, but a fruitless people, and a fruitless temple, which is the next puzzle piece. Jesus closes down the temple. If you were to combine um, these things, you will get a sense of how important the temple was in Jewish life then. The Reserve Bank the Supreme Court, Parliament House, the MCG, and a Westfield store, all in one. Put put them there. That's a a slither of what the temple was to life for a Jewish person in Jesus' day, how significant it was. And he goes into this hugely important part of society, and Jesus starts to remove people buying and selling things. Notice he says, removing people that are buying and selling selling. He's putting a stop to people being able to access animals used in a sacrifice or to be cleansed from a relationship that's been defiled or anything like that. Both the buyer and the seller, he says, let's not do that anymore. See, as people arrived at the temple, what would happen is they would need to buy an animal, an acceptable offering to God. And what that meant was you would have to use a certain type of coin, like we would. if you go overseas, you need to take your Australian dollars and exchange it for US dollars. So they would go to the temple and exchange their coins for the silver that's acceptable to use in the temple and exchange it. Then they would go and find the dove or the lamb that they needed for whatever was wrong with their relationship with God or someone else. And it was an approved animal. So this was actually a good thing because it was the perfect animal in the perfect place with the perfect money so that they can have the relationship restored. The system was designed to help people bring something acceptable to God. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing but Jesus then flips the coin tables and the birdcages is over. He then says to those carrying merchandise, stop coming through this way, showing there's, this is no longer the way you need to go. Don't bring anything. Don't bring more stuff into this place. He's closing down this whole system because he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. His issue is the temple is not operating how God intended it to be. And he refers to two parts of the Old Testament, Isaiah 56. A great anticipation of nations gathering to pray and offer sacrifices and God will accept them. This is a huge, huge verse. But when he assessed it in verse 11, he looked around, it turned out all that was happening was Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is what Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 says. The house which is called by my name has become a den of robbers. Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. You see when Jesus quotes these verses, particularly Jeremiah 7, the emphasis isn't on selling animals or silver, it's about a false security that fake religion was breeding. How it turned into a place that looked good on the outside like the healthy fig tree, but in reality, it was simply a hiding place, a mask for evil and corruption. The temple was no longer hope for the nations. It became a marketplace for forgiveness, no matter how you acted. right? I could. doesn't matter what I do, I buy the bird, I pay the money, and off I go, and it is okay. The buying birds was the symptomatic of a deeper problem. And Jesus' eyes pierced that. A place that should offer hope and forgiveness and prayer, but instead, all he sees is corruption. What should be a joyful meeting place of of hope and life and fruitfulness between God and humanity was not fruitful and it was now being cursed. You see, Jesus isn't trying to reform the temple. he's, He's rejecting the whole system. The glory of the temple is fading. The new meeting place of heaven and earth is no longer bricks and mortar and wood. It's going to be in Jesus when he came from heaven as one of us. The temple will never again be rebuilt It is never again necessary in God's agenda for the world because Jesus is the location where heaven and earth meet. God's presence is found on earth as we worship Him. He is the center of it all. Which is the second puzzle piece, that the temple is as barren as a fig tree that has no fruit. The physical temple is not the future God has for His people. It's always supposed to be a temporary stopgap until Jesus arrived, and He's here. But if the temples in the Reserve Bank and the MCG in the Westfield and the if we just said let's get rid of all that there's some pretty big questions that might come to mind. For these guys, well, what would life be like without the temple? Which is the final puzzle piece. So the next day Peter sees a dead fig tree and says, Jesus, it's dead, like you said, it's withered up. And if you've ever found Jesus' words strange, it's okay because he's actually drawing together all these threads of the last few days. the coming in as the king, cursing the fig tree, clearing the temple. And his reply, while it sounds strange initially, is to establish for us and them that to abandon faith in a temple doesn't mean you're abandoning faith in God. That's why he says the very first words, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes... What they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. Now, two things, I think, happen when you read these verses, if you're anything like me. Firstly, you feel really discouraged. I've never picked up a mountain. I've believed and I've prayed and things haven't changed. So, I skip over it quickly in my Bible reading, put it in the too hard basket, Push away the saying and say, oh, it's just, I feel defeated and deflated because at first glance, Jesus is telling me, I don't have enough faith. So I move on. Secondly, you could grab this by the horns and resort to a self-imposed boldness. And you could say, I just need to name and claim some sort of victory over any challenge or any moment, assuring myself that if I pray and believe and have more faith, I can move any mountain And so then I resort to grit and effort, claiming I just have to believe hard enough. And I still end up feeling defeated anyway, because it turns out I don't have enough faith. So you hear Jesus here, and you slip into despair and discouragement, or you might become prideful and and rely on your self-made effort. But that's nothing what Jesus is trying to get at. What was the learning outcome today? Encouragement. Jesus' words here should be very encouraging for all believers. I imagine as the disciples hear these words, they have a smile across their face. Relief, great joy and awe. Because what Jesus is saying is that belief and faith are no longer tied to a temple, hoping you've done the right thing in the right way with the right offering and the right bird and the right money and the right. You're attaching your faith to the true object now. And that's greatly assuring. So we have to read Jesus' words carefully to, to see that. Notice, Jesus does not say, if you have faith, you can move your mountains. Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain. The parallel account of this in Matthew chapter 17, he also says, if anyone says to this mountain. Jesus is not talking here about any mountain as if the test of your faith was to go to Anstey's Hill this afternoon and stand in the car park and say throw yourself into the Gulf of St. Vincent, please. Nor is he saying, if you face a metaphorical mountain, just say really loudly, move, I need to succeed here. That you can't do that has nothing to do with the lack of faith, so relax. It's okay. Firstly, the object of faith is clearly God here. Faith is located in Him, not the temple. All the temple ever offered you is now yours by faith as we place our faith in the new greater temple, Jesus. You see, this mountain, this mountain is actually the hill the temple sits on. In Micah 4 verse 1 we read that. Jerusalem was on a hill and the temple was atop of the hill. This mountain, Jesus referring to. And he pronounces a judgment upon this mountain, this temple. The meeting place, the high place of God. He's throwing it into a place of destruction, the sea. Jesus has moved the mountain into the sea on your behalf so you can live by faith in him, not a physical system for assurance. If anyone believes and does not doubt, there is great assurance through faith in God, the proper object, Jesus, that it will be done. Which means the assurance you need no longer comes from where you go, what you do, what you can afford to buy. Jesus has undone those parts of the temple. Rather, assurance comes through Jesus, the King, whom we're all pointed to anyway. Which is why Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe and it will be yours. And again, context. Lamborghinis and houses don't fall from the sky if we believe in prayer. And you know that. you've, You've tried it in other ways and it hasn't worked. But you see, the context here is that the same way the temple functioned, all you would ever ask God for in the temple, seeking forgiveness, dealing with your sin or any conflict between people, cleansing from defilement by living in a world out of joint, offering something to God. In Jesus, you ask for those things, and you find great assurance through faith in God that the old way offered is gone. In Him, the fullness has arrived. True religion is not full of doubting or wondering, have I done enough? Have I believed enough? Do I have enough faith? True religion gives great assurance that by faith in God, not a temple, it's enough. Jesus is enough. Not thinking, I've done this right thing, I've been to this place, I've said the words, I've offered a sacrifice, therefore I'm good. Genuine faith offers all you need for a life of godliness in a non-withered dead way. As Jesus says in verse 25, it gives us great hope in our community, this genuine faith, especially when we offend others. And then you hear the, the the logic of what he's saying. If the sacrifices stop, how do you how do you and someone else be forgiven under the temple system? It's easy. You both go to the temple with a bird or a goat, and you say, "This is the broken relationship. Let's kill it. Let's put things right." And off we go. With no temple, how is prayer effective? When you'd usually go to the temple to pray. What angle do you face to pray? You know, Daniel in the Old Testament faced Jerusalem when he opened the windows and prayed. Well, if the temple's gone, what direction is God in for me to pray for? You see? Listen to Jesus. When you stand to pray, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so your Father in Heaven may forgive your sins. True religion has forgiveness baked into it because of the forgiveness that God extends to us by faith In Jesus. Again, it's wonderfully encouraging. There is hope. You can be forgiven without a temple. Because what genuine religion offers you, forgiveness between you and God and you and others, comes through Jesus, the true temple. Jesus addresses a fundamental problem of our community life here as well. You will step on each other's toes in the community. You will offend and hurt people who love Jesus too. And when that happens, there is hope, not because there's a temple there, but because by faith, we look to Jesus, the true meeting place of God. It's the only time, by the way, in Mark's Gospel, when Mark ever refers to God as our Father in this section, the, the, the relationship between all Jesus' followers, our Father, Jesus says. He's imagining a community, not revolving around a temple, but revolving around faith in God and forgiveness of others when we pray Again, the disciples are smiling, encouraged. Finally, there is great joy and hope in being able to come to God through faith in a greater temple, find forgiveness in Him and from the offences and mistakes that happen in life when I kick around with everyone else. You don't need to rush to a place or buy a thing or have it to fix a broken relationship, and that's liberating. Over a dinner table, right there, when the offence happens, in a car, before church, in your home. You can find Jesus there, His forgiveness, His presence, His peace. And through belief and prayer and faith in Him, we know God hears us. Not because we're facing a direction, but through the assurance that relationships can be restored to God and one another, orientating our lives around Jesus, the true meeting place of God. It's incredibly encouraging. You know, in *The Sword and the Stone*, um, Ector, the old man, they kneeling down. Once he realizes who Arthur is, Ector's the guardian that looks after Arthur and calls him "Wart," and is not very nice to him actually for the whole movie. When he realizes it's the king, he falls to his knees and says, "Oh, forgive me." And Arthur says, oh, "I forgive you." And then Ector turns to his son. The one Arthur went to get the sword for, and says, Bow down to the king, you know. But he's kind of freaking out, oh, bow down to the king. As if to say, oh, I'm forgiven. you got to bow down and be forgiven too. And so too, in our community, we remind each other of the one who has not pulled a sword from a stone because he was just late, like, you know, was forgetful, but the king that came into the city, that did away with the temple because he himself is the temple. We remind ourselves that it's none other than King Jesus. It means, far from offering a seven-point step to forgiveness here, Jesus is explaining that the, the faith now urges others on, onwards to forgiveness, encourages us with the assurance that King Jesus has come, and we point each other to him. To extend the same grace and forgiveness that we have received to one another, to humbly seek God for the wrongs that we have done, and celebrating the joy that we have in him this is the life jesus calls us to a fruitful life where faith and forgiveness and prayer are to be part of our community just like it was since the time of eden in the garden so that we can be fruitful trees all year round in every season so true religion in jesus' eyes is living by faith and prayer in forgi- knowing we're forgiven Because of King Jesus. And our verses today, Jesus wants to give assurance that by faith you have all you need to live a godly life. Isn't Jesus so great? There's assurance here. Not, I'm defeated, I've got no faith. No, no. Have faith in God. It's enough. He's done it. Let me pray, and then we're going to keep praying to a wonderful God as Micah leads us in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you are enough, that you have done enough, you have said enough, you are the center and object of true faith and you came to, to, to bring heaven and earth to meet together in you so we can know you now, ourselves and in our community. And just as you came once to do that, you will come again to put all things right, to renew and refresh and restore us and all creation. We long for that day, but until then, help us to Bump and fumble along the road of life, knowing you're with us. Now we point each other to you, and we find forgiveness at the foot of your cross as we humbly bear down to King Jesus. Amen.